The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across me is the one, the only, the beast herself, Tammy, the girl Underwood. Morning, Tam. Morning. Did you have dreams about my new sex position called Mom? Or called Wow? No, I did not. <laughs> Those would be nightmares. So I'm already upset at this one. Let me tell you why. Okay? Doing the Atlanta child murders, which uh, involves Wayne Williams... I wrote to him, and we've been shot down before. Didn't even shoot me down. Just blocked me. Blocked you. Just automatically. No fuck off. I, I would have. Yeah, totally why didn't I think of that? You're funny. You got jokes today, don't you, fucker? Some. Some. Yeah, I would. I could respect it if you just sent me a message that said, hey, fuck off. I don't want to talk to you. Oh, okay, cool. That's all right. Yeah. But no. It automatically blocks me. All right. Let's get into the Atlanta child murders. Take it away, big Squatchzilla. This is going to be about a three-parter, so, you know. Oh, okay. So so let me set the stage of Atlanta during this time, all right? The city of Atlanta, Georgia, you know, your home state, had grown into an economic powerhouse in the South. Um, it was a developing as a major regional transportation center, but it also had a number of other corporations there as well. For instance, Coca-Cola, Delta, and Cox Communications. COX. Yeah, I know. That's okay. where my mom and stepdad just, used to work for. I was just eliminating your dumb jokes. You know. So the increasingly black population in the city actually voted one of, you know, voted in a black mayor at that time named Maynard Jackson. Maynard. Maynard. <laughs> BLM. Bald Lives Matter. You're so dumb. Now, Jackson wanted to keep a power, had to do kept a power balancing act between his black constituency and the existing white power structure was critical. Otherwise, the white power structure would flee to the suburbs and leave the city in a diminished tax base. Now, Bernard Heedley wrote a book called The Atlanta Youth Murders and the Politics of Race, says inevitably many of the balancing acts that Mayor Jackson was forced to perform with Atlanta's white power structure were seen by blacks as betrayal. So throughout much of his second term, a context of racial strain persisted. Now, despite the strong economic growth, the black population in the city remained very poor. Not surprisingly, a serious crime problem developed that made Atlanta one of the most dangerous cities in the country. I think it still is. And with Atlanta, I got two different trains of thought. Like when I see Atlanta at night and it's all lit up, I go, wow, what a beautiful city. And then the sun comes out and you're like, whoa, the what fuck happened to this place? What the fuck? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, did I miss something? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Continue on. Can, can I continue? Can, Thank you. Carry on my wayward side. Now, Atlanta's business community was alarmed at the spiraling crime rate. Fearful that businesses would flee the city and conventions would find safer cities for their meetings. This situation reached a crisis level as a series of murders of black children and teenagers began to come forward. I want to point out something before you continue. There's a lot of law enforcement activity when it comes to crime doesn't happen until it affects people politically right. or financially. You know, so if and I, and I lock those two together for this one here only because I'm pretty sure the cops are like, fuck it, it's Atlanta. We don't give a shit um, until the city started losing money. Right. And now, oh, now it's a problem. Well, you know what, jackass? It was a problem before. You were losing money. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, these the murders actually at that time were believed to have been carried out by a, by a racist white group. So they did nothing to recommend the city to tourists or new business opportunities. Oh, like Bald Lives Matter? Yeah, that's it right there. Now, in a four-month period, two very high-profile street murders of whites by blacks would crystallize their fears. On June 28, 1979, a young white doctor attending one of the conventions was murdered by two black men. On October 17, 1979, a mentally unstable black man 
was gunned down, gunned down a white legal secretary on her birthday. Everyone was outraged, and the media demanded a crackdown on crime. If she got gunned down, do you still have to buy her a cake and put the candles on it? Are you asking for a friend? I'm asking for a friend because okay. it was her birthday. Yeah, I know. No, no that, that's shitty, man. That's I a know. Bad birthday. Worst birthday present ever. One star. <laughs> One star. Do not recommend. <laughs> yeah. In 19- like the so, Dallas Cowboys. Uh, you know what? I knew that was coming. I knew it was coming. I tried to gloss over it, but no. Had to interrupt me. In 1978, Mayor Jackson had replaced his controversial black public safety commissioner Reginald Eves with Dr. Lee Brown who was an intelligent, capable manager but had very limited street experience and was perceived as socially distant from the poor black community. Little did the city understand that these two highly publicized crimes would be dwarfed by two other crimes which, when they happened, received almost no publicity. The the two crimes that received no publicity were the were the two black boys who were found murdered at the end of July 1979, officially starting one of the most highly publicized murder series in history. A couple of years later, 29 black youths would be dead, and a black man, Wayne Williams, who many people believe was railroaded by the government, would be imprisoned for life. Now, 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith lived in one of Atlanta's lower-income housing projects on Cape Street in southwest Atlanta. This was a destitute place that many had the misfortune of living and few had the means to escape, even though Edward had tried. It isn't difficult to understand why anyone would want to run away from such a disheartening place where more garbage filled the streets than people. Just after midnight in the early morning of July 21st, 1979, Edward left a skating rink where he had spent the evening with his girlfriend and began the long walk home. Several days later, his friend, 14-year-old Alfred Evans, who lived on the other side of town um, in East Lake Meadows housing projects, left home to see a karate movie in downtown Atlanta. Now, both boys were very athletic. Smith was a football fanatic, and Evans was equally exuberant about basketball, professional wrestling, boxing, and karate. Smith was training to play on the high school football team in the fall, and Evans played basketball and boxed. These boys had promised, despite their disadvantaged status. They had dreams that they were enthusiastically pursuing. Dreams became nightmares when Edward never got home from the skating rink that morning, and Alfred didn't make it to the karate movie. And Instead, both of them were found July 28th in a wooded area in the southwest part of the city. Thank you. Um, Edward had been killed with a 22 caliber gun and uh, Alfred by an undetermined means. The medical examiner guessed at asphyxia, possibly resulting from strangulation. Both boys were dressed in black, but Edward's socks and distinctive football shirt were missing. Alfred was wearing a belt that wasn't his and Edward was easily identified with dental records but alfred's identification is still debated what happened police determined that both boys had at least some involvement with drugs and were possibly together at a pot party one caller claimed that alfred shot edward and a third boy strangled alfred in a fit of rage these stories didn't work well with the difference of days between their disappearances nor did the caller ever show up to make a formal statement well, that's all the police needed to hear. Black boys involved with drugs, no matter whether it was, you know, true or not. Sad, but it happens all the time. Further investigation was limited. Now, while the police may have been able to get away with dismissing the deaths of Smith and Evans as drug-related, it was certainly not the case with 14-year-old Milton Harvey. His parents had extricated Milton from the high-risk projects years ago and moved him to a pleasant middle-class neighborhood in northwest Atlanta. He didn't go to school on the first day of the session because his mother had inadvertently brought, bought him the wrong kind of sneakers and he couldn't face the embarrassment. That day, September 4th, Milton, 1979, Milton borrowed a bike and took a check to the bank to pay a credit card bill for his mother. He disappeared along with the bicycle, which was found a week later in a deserted dirt lane named Sandy Creek Road. <laughs> what? Not to be confused with where you work, Sandy Boulevard. You're going to say something stupid. Now, Milton's badly decomposed remains were found in mid-November in a rubbish dump off Red Wine Road in the suburb of East Point, a jurisdiction outside of Atlanta city limits, and many miles from where the bicycle and 
was found from where the bicycle was found and his home. His death was not at first considered a homicide since there were no marks of violence on the skeletal remains. A few weeks before his remains were found, Yusuf Bell, an extremely gifted nine-year-old, disappeared on his way to the store to buy snuff for a neighbor. Remember back in the day when you could do that? Yep. I, I, yeah. With I, a I, note from your parent? Yeah. Hey, two packs of Virginia Slims. How old are you, son? Five. Well, here's your smokes. Get out of here. <laughs> you got a note from mommy. Okay. And, and what kind do you smoke, young man? Marlboro's? Well, a pack for you, too. Get out of here, you little scamp. <laughs> right? Now, after buying the snuff, a woman thought she saw him get into a blue car with a man she believed was a former husband of Yusuf's mother, Camille. The police later discounted this sighting. Unlike the earlier three cases, Yusuf's disappearance received some media attention as Camille begged the abductor to release her well-loved boy. Was was this kid black? Yeah, they're all black. Really? No, that makes sense. Yeah. Because you don't normally hear a black guy with the name of Yusuf. Right. That's just, that's more of a, like, maybe Russian, uh... Israeli. Okay, yeah, I'd go with maybe Israeli, Pakistani, something like that. But Pakistani. You, you never hear, like, you know, you hear Jamal and Jerome, you never hear, and my name, Yusuf. Um, yeah, who, Milton. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Now, Camille's hopes vanished when a school custodian in an, an abandoned... In the abandoned E.P. Johnson Elementary School discovered Yusuf on November 8th. His body had been wedged into a concrete hole in the floor. He'd been strangled to get death either by hand or ligature. And the boy had been barefoot when he disappeared and was still barefoot when he was found. But the button, bottoms of his feet had been washed clean. This case had finally captured the attention of the community at large. Yusuf's funeral was a major event. City officials, black leaders, and politicians of every color fell all over themselves to give their condolences to Camille and mourn the tragic death of a promising young man. Now, Mayor Jackson promised a full investigation, but none of the four murders were considered connected, just random acts of violence that happen in poor black neighborhoods. Camille Bell and her friends didn't buy that story and realized that these murders were not typical. They continued to articulate their displeasure at the efforts of the police and the city administration, which they considered too distant from its black constituency. Along with this vocal displeasure crept in the fear that the murders were racially motivated and that the Klan was behind it. The police got some breathing room between the last half of November and early March. In March of 1980, the killing of black children and youth began again. The lull came to a nasty end on March 4, 1980, when 12-year-old Angel Lanier finished her homework and left her apartment in southwest Atlanta. When she didn't come home for her favorite television show, her mother, Venus, called the police. As Angel was approaching puberty, her mother worried more and more. Their home was near Fort McPherson, and men were starting to take an interest in her. Venus Taylor's worst fears were confirmed on March 10, 1980, when the police found Angel's body tied to a tree with an electrical cord around her neck and a pair of panties did not, that did not belong to her stuffed into her mouth. Her cause of death was asphyxiation by strangulation with the electrical cord. Although Angel's hymen had been broken and there were some minor abrasions in their genital area, the medical examiner did not interpret those facts to mean evidence of sexual assault. Those findings became controversial and did not mean that Angel was not the victim of sex abuse. Uh, this particular case was quite different than the previous cases in that the victim was female and her body was found under different circumstances than the male victims. There were two suspects who were eventually cleared of her murder. The day after Angel's body was found, Jeffrey Mathis, 10 years old, had left his home to buy cigarettes for his mother again <laughs> in the early evening like Yusuf Jeffrey would never return from his errand which was only a few blocks away his mother Willie May I love that name I do too it's a pretty name Willie May Mathis became worried when he was gone over an hour and sent her other sons to look for him later that night a patrolman told Miss Mathis to call the missing persons department if he didn't come home by morning what she did not immediately understand when she contacted the department the next day is that the missing persons department at that time in the Atlanta police and in other ma and many other major cities did very little to investi 
investigate the disappearance of young people, it was assumed that children and teenagers were runaways and not victims of foul play. And she was out of cigarettes, and that's a bitch when you run out of cigarettes. You send your kid up there, you know, your five-year-old to go get fucking smokes for you. Right? <laughs> he was 10. All right, find your 10-year-old. <laughs> By now, he should be smoking some Marlboros. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeffrey... Uh, had last been seen by a friend getting into the backseat of a blue car, possibly a Buick. 13 days after Mathis had gone missing, Willie Turner, who would recognize Mathis's picture from the newspaper, claimed that he saw Jeffrey in a blue Nova, driven by a white adult male. Willie Turner also told police that the man he had seen with Mathis had later in the week pulled a gun on him before taking off in his car. Police did little in response to the information given by Turner. The report was filed away and forgotten. The blue car that was earlier seen by Mathis's friend in connection with Jeffrey's disappearance was very similar to the description of a car seen by an eyewitness in the later disappearance case of a boy named Aaron Weish. Now, Jeffrey Mathis's two brothers had also reported seeing a blue Buick in the driveway of a house that Jeffrey frequented. Interestingly, shortly after Mathis's disappearance, boys from his school had complained to the principal that two black men in a blue car had attempted to lure them away from the schoolyard. The youngsters had memorized the license plate and reported it to the police. Once again, little was done. Um, Eric Middlebrooks, 14, got a phone call around 10.30 p.m., on May 18, 1980, and he immediately grabbed his tools and told his foster mother he was going to repair, going out to repair his bike. Early the next morning, his body was found a few blocks away. His bike was nearby, and Eric had been bludgeoned to death. As police looked into this murder, it was suspected that Eric had been eyewitness to a robbery and that the robbery suspects were also the murder suspects. However, there was insufficient proof. Just outside of the city limits of Atlanta, in Decatur... 12-year-old Christopher Richardson lived in a nice middle-class neighborhood with his grandparents and mother. In the early afternoon of June 9, 1980, Christopher went to a local recreation center to go swimming, and he never got there. A few weeks later, in the early morning of June 22, 1980, an amazing crime occurred. Seven-year-old Latanya Wilson was abducted from her home. A neighbor claimed that she saw a black man remove the window pane in the Wilson apartment, climb into the apartment, and leave with the little girl in his arms. Now, in the book, The List describes how difficult it would have been to do what the neighbor claimed she saw. If, as the neighbor said, the kidnapper climbed through that window, he stepped squarely onto a bed where two other Wilson children were asleep. Neither one of them woke up. Once inside, he stole Latanya from her bed, carrying her past the door of her parents' bedroom. He walked back out the back door, leaving it open. Outside, he is said to have paused in the parking lot to speak to another black male, all the while holding the limp figure of Latanya under his right arm. Whoever- Wait, hold on. We did an episode a couple of years ago that was an unsolved. Uh, what was I think it was the cleaning lady murders or... Oh, the servant girl murders. Yeah. And it was similar. Like, a couple of girls got killed with the kid. You know, they were all sharing the same room. Mm-hmm. And the, the perpetrator came in and killed them, killed a couple of kids, without waking anybody else up. So, it's it's possible. I'm, say, I'm, not, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that it happened that way. I'm just saying that there is a possibility that it happened that way. Yeah, it's a possibility. Now, whoever was responsible for these murders and disappearances was approaching a record in the history of crime. What the citizens of Atlanta, the city government, and eventually the FBI didn't realize was that it was just the beginning. One author aptly named it a summer of death. Right? Sounds like a good horror movie to watch, actually. It does, actually. Now, New the- from Lionsgate, summer of death. Why do you choose Lionsgate? Isn't that like a low budget? Nah. Lionsgate only does fucking horror flicks, I think. I haven't seen anything from them that's not some kind of a almost B-rate-ish. Well, some some of the stuff isn't B-rated, but um, it's it's mostly horror flicks. I love it. Mostly horror. We know how much I love the whores. Horror. Oh, horror. My bad. My bad. The Horror. The now, horror of that statement. You're so dumb. Now, the cumulative ineffectiveness of the Atlanta Police Department has solved the growing number of missing and murdered children. 
uh, galvanized three of the victims' mothers, Camille Bell, Willie Mae Mathis, and Venus Taylor, to join with Reverend Earl Carroll to form the community Committee to Stop Children's Murders. The group pressured both the Atlanta city government and sought support from the white corporate power structure. The group was formed none too soon because the day after Latonya Wilson's uh, shocking abduction, 10-year-old Aaron Weish disappeared. The next day, his body was found beneath a six-lane highway bridge that passed over railroad tracks in DeKalb County. His death was caused by asphyxia, said the medical examiner, because he landed in a way that prevented him from breathing. This death was not initially considered a homicide, even though Aaron was deathly afraid of heights and would not have voluntarily climbed that trestle unless he was running away from someone. The assumption was that Aaron fell off the bridge, despite the fact that the guardrails on the bridge were almost as high as he was tall. There is no way Aaron Weish could have fallen off that bridge, jumped or been thrown, maybe, but fall, no. On July 6, 1980, 9-year-old Anthony Carter was out playing hide-and-seek with his cousin after 1 a.m. in the morning when he vanished. He was found stabbed to death the next day behind a warehouse less than a mile from his house. Throughout this epidemic of murder and missing children, the Atlanta police maintained that the cases were separate and not connected. The general attitude was that Atlanta in recent history had a high rate of murdered children. However, after the publicity that the mother's group was getting, the city government bowed to the political pressure and announced the formation of a task force in mid-July to focus their investigative efforts. However, I want to pause for a minute. Because are you seeing what I'm seeing here? I see a pause. I'm a polar bear. No, but have you seen? I mean, are you tracking what I'm tracking so far? I am, because think of the time. They're black kids. It's Atlanta. Nobody gave a fuck. Well, not just that. Not just that. But they range. I mean, they're male and female, ranging in age from how old was Latanya? I was trying to think. She was like fucking seven uh, or something. Yeah, seven year old. Okay, so yeah. that's the youngest one. Seven years old to in their mid teens. Yeah. Okay. I don't think it's the same person. Well, I would normally say no, but we just did an episode on this Robert Lee Yates dude who had that huge spread in age. And crossed the racial lines. Yeah, crossed the racial lines, not just once, not just twice, but four fucking times. Yeah. So, I want to say no. Yeah. But, it eh, might be. Maybe. But I would think that it would take more than one person to do all this and I'm, I'm yeah. So two weeks later, on July 30th, 1980, 11-year-old Earl Terrell went with some friends to a swimming po- pool. And Earl began to misbehave, and the lifeguard threw him out of the pool. After that, he disappeared. Earl's aunt, who lived next door, got a phone call. I've got Earl. Don't call the police, he told her. Shortly afterwards, the man, who sounded like a white southerner, called back saying, I've got Earl. He's in Alabama. It will cost you $200 to get him back. I will call back on Friday. Right? Um, according $200. You keep that motherfucker. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> he would be misbehaving at the school and shit. $200. He can at act up for you acting a fool. You'll bring him back, damn it. (laughs) According to one author, police learned of a child porn ring that was operating right across the street from the the, uh, South Bend Park pool. John David Wilcoxon was convicted when police found thousands of photos of children pornographically displayed. Police dismissed the connection between Wilcoxon and Terrell because the photos were of white boys. But a witness claimed that Earl Terrell had been to Wilcoxon's house several times. Also, there was some disagreement as to whether the photos were actually all white boys or not. At that point, Latanya Wilson had been abducted and Earl Terrell potentially abducted and transferred across state lines. Kidnapping and transporting a person across state lines was a jurisdiction of the FBI. Atlanta Mayor Maynard Jackson had been trying to get the FBI into this case, and now he had the proper rationale. The summer ended up with the death of one more child. 13-year-old Clifford Jones had come to visit his grandmother in Atlanta and was found strangled by some unknown ligature on August 20th. His body had been put in a dumpster wearing shorts and underwear that were not his. Police were presented with a strong suspect in a 
manager of a laundromat that, according to an author, was widely known for homosexual gatherings. Bernard Healy sums up the case against the suspect. Three youthful witnesses saw the manager go into the rear room with a black boy. One of them said he saw the manager strangle and beat the boy, then carry his body out to the trash container. Two polygraph tests were administered to the laundromat manager, and he failed both, according to FBI records. Even though he admitted that he knew Clifford and that Clifford was in the laundromat on the evening of August 20th, 1980. Medical experts had determined that the time of Clifford's death was between four and six hours before the, his body was discovered, which would have placed the laundromat manager with the boy around the time he was killed. The, the authorities had not charged the man with anything, however, because they determined that the youth who had actually saw Clifford Jones being murdered was classified as mentally retarded. Okay. So another witness said he had seen the man whom he knew carry a large object wrapped in plastic and place it by the dumpsters the night before Jones's body was discovered. The large object wrapped in plastic turned out to be the body of Clifford Jones. Um, two other witnesses claimed to see the same man who they had also known carrying the object wrapped in plastic to the dumpsters. Okay. I'm following. How are we doing on time? Doing okay. Okay. I just want to know because I... I, I want to get to a stopping point when we're close, so, like, give me a heads up or something. Yeah, we got, we're, we're not even at the half hour mark yet. Oh, okay, cool. So, once the official task force was formed, the police had to decide which cases to include in their investigation. Those specially assigned cases, which represented murders that fit, fit particular parameters, were compiled into a list. The list took on a life of its own during the media hype and investigation into the murders and is still the source of controversy. Unfortunately, the list led to more people misunderstanding the facts about the case than their understanding of them. This was largely due to the inaccurate and incomplete information gathered about each of the victims, which were often caused by negligence, ignorance, or mismanagement by authorities. In many instances, reports conflicted with one another. Uh, bodies were misidentified, reports were sometimes changed or lost, and crime scenes destroyed. Moreover, according to author and investigator Chet Detlinger, many that should have made the list never did. Of the many murder, hundreds of murders that occurred during the late 70s and early 80s, at least 90 of those shared a similar geographic and or social connection with one another. Connections that would later be ignored by officials in more than 60 of the 90 cases. During the course of the investigation into the murders, the task force unit ignored the more than 60 cases, mostly because they failed to meet the parameters that police were continuously changing and because they failed to notice the geographic and social connection between the victims, both on and off that list. Now, more than 60 names never... Hang on, my ear itches. More than 60 names never made the list, which could have been because they fit similar social and geographical patterns of those cases that had qualified for the list. Unfortunately, the task force disregarded many as special cases because they failed to meet their parameters, which were continually modified. Some who had failed to make the list at one point could have qualified for it at another point after the list was changed. This allowed many victims' cases to slip through the cracks that should have received the attention they deserved. After Wayne Williams was arrested, more than 20 people were murdered, some of which have also made the list. They never did because police had stopped adding names to the list after they had Williams in custody. Some of those who had fit the social and geographical parameters recognized by Detlinger were Cynthia Montgomery, Angela Bacon, Joseph Lee, Faye Yearby, and Stanley Murray. They were just a few of the many who had not made that list. See, that's what gets me. They they got Wayne Williams in custody. Right. And, and then kids more are still murders. dying. Exactly. You know, they're like, oh, fuck it. We solved that case, didn't we? Well, it's awfully hard to be doing the murdering when you're behind bars. Right. I'm not saying it's impossible, just saying the probability, pretty damn low. Pretty damn low. Now, for, for example, Faye Yearby was 22 years old 
She was considered too old to be making the list at the time of her death in January of 1981. She was found almost nine months after Angel Lanier's body had been found, stabbed to death, and tied to a tree. Yerby had also been found bound to a tree in almost the exact same position as Angel. Even though her death in many ways resembled that of Angel, task force agents refused to acknowledge any link between the cases. Furthermore, she was never added to the list because of her age and sex. So, I mean, I'm seeing similarities. Oh, no, there is, yeah. So, on F- September 14, 1980, 10-year-old Darren Glass vanished. Shortly afterwards, his foster mother received an emergency phone call from someone claiming to be Darren. But when she answered the phone, the line was dead. The police ignored the case, however, because Darren had run away several times before that. Now, the black leadership, churches, and community at large were mobilizing along a number of fronts to deal with this crisis. Activities ranged from prayer vigils, safety education programs, and even regular searches for the missing children. The Atlanta government had even gone so far as to bring in psychic Dorothy Allison, who had assisted in some high-profile cases. Now, according to... Chet Dillinger was the first to understand that there was a geographic connection to the victims. A number of the victims knew each other and either lived, were last seen, or their bodies were found in several key areas of the city. He tried valiantly to explain the unfolding pattern that he saw emerging so that police could concentrate their efforts in those critical areas, but they ignored his theories. What the police were still wrestling with was a case in which there were many different causes of death, modus operandi, and signatures, only a few of which seemed to fit a pattern. Usually, a serial killer selects a particular type of target that's either male or female, rarely both. While the MO can change based upon the killer's experience or opportunity, the signature um, is the killer's psychological psychological calling card that he leaves at each crime scene across a spectrum of several murders. I want to say that the, the, the ammo really doesn't change. It evolves. Yeah. Is what happens. Usually, I mean, there, there's yeah. still going to be similarities in the previous MO as a killer gets more accustomed to killing and kind of gets into his groove. Yes, that's true. That's true. Hang on, I gotta take a drink of water. But, um, let's see, where was I? Calling card spectrum of several murders. Okay. For example, when the killer in one murder intentionally leaves the victim in a position so the victim will be found open and displayed, posed physically, spread eagled and vulnerable, or when he savagely beats that victim to a point of overkill and violently rapes her with an iron rod. Part of the problem was the list itself. It was very unlikely that one individual or group of individuals was responsible for all of these murders and disappearances. Comparing the abduction of LaDonia Wilson with the stabbing death of Clifford Jones suggests very different perpetrators. However, at least in some of the cases, it appeared that at least one or possibly several unconnected serial killers were at work. As the murders and disappearances continued relentlessly, various patterns emerged. Right? So late in the evening on October 9, 1980, 12-year-old Charles Stevens had gone missing. He was found murdered the next morning on a hillside. He had died from suffocation from an unknown object. At the crime scene, the evidence had been contaminated by a police officer when he threw a blanket over the corpse of the boy. The fibers from the blanket were mixed with the fibers already at the scene. The fibers found were thought to have come from the red interior of a Ford LTD. Good going, numb nuts. I know, right? Anyways, a drug dealer went to the police a day after Stephen's body was discovered. He told police that on the same day Charles Stevens disappeared, he had gotten into the car of a client of his to sell drugs. When the drug dealer looked into the backseat of the car, he saw a young boy lying lifeless with his head turned toward the trunk and wrapped in a sheet. When the drug dealer asked about the boy, the driver of the car became angry and told him the boy was merely doped up and passed out. The drug dealer stated to police that he was concerned about the boy because he didn't look dope up, but worse off, possibly dead. The driver of the car told the dealer to forget what he saw. He later threatened the dealer with his life if he had, if he said anything about the boy in the back seat. It was then that the dealer went to the police and told him the story. He added that he knew the man to be a pedophile and had on occasions been offered money to find the driver 
for young boys with whom he could have sex. In May October, the skeletal remains of Latanya Wilson were found in northwest Atlanta, not too far from her home. It was impossible to determine her cause of death or whether she had been sexually abused given the state of her body's decomp. Now, okay. During the fall... Of 1980, the mayor of Atlanta issued a citywide curfew. It was feared that the killer or killers would strike during Halloween, possibly targeting trick-or-treaters as they walked the city streets. The city patrols were stepped up in an effort to prevent another murder. Unfortunately, all attempts failed when yet another body had been discovered in the first week of November. Nine-year-old Aaron Jackson, a friend of earlier victim Aaron Weish, was found dead beneath a bridge in South River in November of 1980, close to where Aaron's body had been discovered. Now, Jackson's cause of death was documented as probable asphyxia. Like Charles Stevens, it was believed that Aaron Jackson had been smothered. At about the time Jackson was thought to have been killed, a woman had witnessed a man at the scene where the body was later discovered. The woman reported what she had had seen to the task force, who in turn failed to respond to the report. However, that was not the only error made by police. Throughout the investigation, details would be consistently confused with the details concerning Jackson's friend's case, Aaron. It seemed that the cause of the confusion stemmed from the fact that the boys were very good friends and shared the same first names. That's you. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Ugh, my tummy hurts. Um, Aaron Jackson was later connected with Patman Rogers. Not Pac-Man, Pac-Man. I was just going to ask. It sounded like you, I swear to God, it sounded like you said Pac-Man Rogers. I'm like, well, damn. I know, I, it sounded like that to me, too, so I had Where's to. Where's Miss Pac-Man at? You got some Donkey Kong. I take some Donkey Kong. Yeah. Now, him and Aaron Weish were friends and neighbors with this Pac-Man Rogers. At one time, Pac-Man had a crush on Jackson's sister, Patrick Pac-Man Rogers, was the next to go missing. 16-year-old Patrick Patman Rogers was a karate fanatic and singer. He was often spotted at Bruce Lee movies or singing with his friend Junior Harper. He had known many people within his neighborhood. He was also connected to at least 17 murdered victims, both on and off the list. Rogers disappeared on November 10, 1980. He, like other victims, including Darren Glass, was thought to have run away. Therefore, he was not added to the list for quite some time. A week before his disappearance, he told his mother that he feared that the killer was close. His friend's mother told police that Rogers was looking for her son to tell him that he had found someone to manage their singing careers, a man named Wayne Williams. Rogers was found on December 21st, 1980, face down in the Chattahoochee River. He died from a blow to his head. Now... (laughs) Two authors stated in their book, The List, that after the death of Jackson, no more preteen little boys were added to the list. The geography changed, too. Furthermore, the murder seemed to move away from the center of the city to the outlying suburbs. Now, Luby Geeter. That's a name. That's a name. Oh, my God. I love that. You said Luby Geeter? Geeter. G-E-T-E-R. Luby Geeter. That sounds like something you buy for anal lube. Okay, I'm going to go get the Luby Geeter. And you're like, well, okay, does that come in 55 gallon? Yes, it does, sir, with its own pump. <laughs> Just ask your son. <laughs> he, he would know. With the 55 so. <laughs> gallons of fucking Luby he has with that damn flashlight that he had to cover up like a dead hooker. It still gives me nightmares thinking about it. <laughs> Luby disappeared in January of 1981. He was 14 years old, even though he fit all of the parameters required by the authorities at the time to make the list. It took two days before the police began their investigation of the crime scene after Geeter's body had been found in February of 1981. The body of Geeter was extremely decomposed when happened upon by a man walking his dog through the woods. When he was found, he was only wearing his underwear. The medical examiner believed that Luby died from asphyxiation from manual strangulation. Now, Luby had been connected with two white male pedophiles. The child molester connected with earlier victim Earl Lee Terrell and another unidentified man who would be later connected to list victim William Barrett. An acquaintance of Luby's had seen him with the molester linked with Terrell on several occasions, and the convicted child molester that had been linked with Terrell was also never a suspect in the murder case of Luby Geeter. Sure it's not Tyrell. 
Terrell. T-E-R-R-E-L-L. Terrell, man. Get it right. You said- I know it's not Tyrell. Damn. I know how to read, Scott. You're just not as black as I am. <laughs> okay. I'm telling you. Now, Terry Pugh was 15 when he disappeared in January of 1981. It's because his name was Peppy. La Pugh? Yep. He'd been last seen at a hamburger restaurant on Memorial Drive and was a friend of list victim Luby Geeter, who had gone missing the same month. Can't get over that name. I know. I just can't get over that fucking name, man. An anonymous white caller phoned the police and informed them that where they could find the boy's body. Now, Pew was found near Interstate 20 on Sigmund Road in Atlanta. He had been strangled by some sort of ligature. The same caller had also indicated that the remains of another victim could be found on the same road. Years later, those remains were finally located but never identified. Some suggested they were the remains of still-missing Darren Glass. The unidentified remains were never added to the list, even though Pew's were. Now, Patrick Balthazar was 11 when he disappeared on February 6, 1981. A man cleaning up the grounds one week after he had gone missing found Balthazar's body in an office park. The, um, the boy had been strangled to death and the rope thought to have been the murder weapon lay close to the body. Before his death, the task force had received a call from the boy saying he believed the killer was coming after him. Unfortunately, the task force failed to respond. One wonders if Balthazar could still be alive today if they had. After Balthazar had gone missing, his teacher claimed she had received a phone call from him, from a boy she thought to be him, and the boy never said who he was. He merely cried into the receiver of the phone. That same month, 13-year-old Curtis Walker disappeared and was immediately added to the list. Curtis had lived with his mother and uncle at the Bowen Homes housing project in Atlanta. Both he and his uncle, Stanley Murray, would be murdered. Curtis would make the now infamous list, but his uncle would not. His body was found on March 6, 1981, in the South River. His death, like many of the other list victims, would be documented as caused by asphyxia, probably strangulation with a cord or narrow rope. So hold on, but at this time, Wayne Williams has already been caught, right? Not yet. Oh, okay, okay. Because we had mentioned that he'd already been caught before, so. No, well, no, it's after he was, it, it's kind of skipped ahead and said after he was, some murders continued to happen. Okay, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm caught up now. Yeah. Uh, that same day, FBI agents found the remains of Jeffrey Mathis missing almost a year, and his funeral was captured on national news. Now, Joseph Jojo Bell was 15 when he went. He disappeared on March 2nd, 1981. Two days after he had gone missing, a co-worker of his who worked at a popular seafood restaurant named Captain Pegs. That's ah, I saw that porn. <laughs> I saw that. Captain Pegs. Seafood. And the land of the seafood deep divers. I tell you I what, got- man, that dude took a peg in like no one I, I've ever I seen. Na- I don't think I could ever eat at a seafood place called Captain Pegs. Yeah, the Captain Pegs gave it to him good, and God damn, man. Woo! I was I was afraid. I was afraid for him. I was yelling, run, run, don't let it peg you. Oh, my God. You don't want the seafood special. Yeah, no, no, no. Now, let's see, two days after he'd gone missing, a co-worker told his manager that Jojo had called him and told him he was, quote, almost dead. The boy said Jojo had pled, had pled for help, his co-worker to help him before hanging up the phone. The ma- manager reported the call to the police, and several days later, Jojo's mother received a call from a woman saying she, who said she had Jojo. The same woman had called back and spoke with Mrs. Bell, Mrs. Bell's two other children. <laughs> Mrs. Bell immediately called the task force, who never contacted her back. Frustrated, she contacted the FBI, but it was too late. JoJo was found on April 19, 1981, in the South River. His cause of death was probable asphyxia. Now, JoJo was linked to several victims on and off the list. His mother had befriended a fellow inmate while serving time for murdering her husband. That woman happened to be the sister of Alfred Evans. JoJo had gone to summer camp with Cynthia Montgomery, a murdered victim who had not made the list, but could be connected to many victims who had made the list. JoJo was also good friends with Timothy Hill, a very troubled young man with violent tendencies, who disappeared 11 days after JoJo. He and Timothy Hill were known to frequent a house on Gray Street known as Uncle Tom's. 
a 63-year-old homosexual man named Thomas Terrell, who was known to have particular interest in young boys, owned the house. Now, Timothy Hill, JoJo's friend, disappeared that same month. Tom Terrell's next-door neighbor saw Timothy the day before he disappeared on March 12, 1981. A young man who had also known Timothy and Tom told police that the two frequently engaged in sex together. Tom would usually pay 13-year-old Timothy for sexual favors. Now, Terrell himself admitted police that he had engaged in sexual acts with the boy. Another witness reported to police that Timothy spent the night at Terrell's after missing his bus the day before he was reported missing. That same witness was last to see Timothy. He claimed that the night before he disappeared, he saw from his window Timothy talking with a teenager, teenage girl. Timothy was found on March 30th, 1980 in the Chattahoochee River. He was the last child victim to be added to the list. His cause of death was also listed as asphyxia. Terrell was never suspected in the disappearance or murder of Timothy or Jojo. Timothy was later linked with Alfred Evans, Jeffrey Mathis, Patrick Balthazar, and Anthony Carter. Throughout the horrible series of murders, the children began to get older. Also, Rivers fast became the favored dumping ground for victims. Suddenly, there were no more child victims. Were the safety education programs and curfews finally working, or had the murderer's taste simply matured? Right? Oh, sorry. Are we still good on time? Yeah, yeah f- not about 15 minutes. Okay, then I'll finish up this next part. And then, So that same year, residents of the housing project named Techwood Homes took to the streets in protest that the police were not doing their jobs in protecting the public. The group of residents decided to take matters into their own hands when they formed the Bat Patrol. (laughs) Is it because they were black or because it was night or because I am Batman? No. The patrol was made up of residents armed with baseball bats hoping to prevent murders from happening in their community. That makes more sense than my theories. Okay, that makes way way more sense. Okay. Sadly, the residents' attempts, like the authorities, had also failed to prevent the murders from occurring. On the exact day that the residents had taken up Bat Patrol and in the very housing project in which it was formed, another person, Eddie Bubba Duncan, disappeared. Bubba, is he related to you, Scott? Piss off, read your story. Where's my my lip gloss? You don't need lip gloss. You ain't got no goddamn lips. Shut up. My lips are chat. How? How? Like, for real, How? Chap lips, that diagnosis has all the information you need. Lips, you don't have any unless you're keeping them in a drawer in your goddamn house. I have lips. In the closet? Shut up. You have a face gash. I hate you. I have lips, bitch. Yeah, you're storing them somewhere, probably from one of your victims. Yeah. Now, the first adult to make the list was 21-year-old Eddie Bubba Duncan. He disappeared on March 20th, 1981 and was found dead on April 8th, 1981. He, like Timothy Hill, had been dumped in the Chattahoochee River. Eddie had several physical and intellectual handicaps. With Duncan's death, the parameters of the list changed to encompass older victims. Before this period, other victims who were young adults were left off the list because they were considered too old. Those earlier young adult victims were never added, even after the parameters changed. Once again, the medical examiner guessed probable asphyxia was documented. And Eddie Duncan was also connected with another list victim, Pac-Man Rogers. Pac-Man. I know. Immense sums of money were offered as rewards to help find the killers at large, killer or killers at large. Much of the money was donated or raised by corporations and famous figures such as Muhammad Ali, Burt Reynolds, and Gladys Knight and the Pips. Hold on. Now, that is politically motivated as well because let's go back to what, to when the investigations actually started. It was because Atlanta was losing money. It went from a powerhouse of a financial area to losing money. Now, all of a sudden, it's important to solve these murders. Mm -hmm. And that is why the, the, you know, like Muhammad Ali and Burt Reynolds, people like that and Gladys Knight and the Pips are even going to give money because now it's, it's good publicity. Right. It has nothing to do with actually giving a shit that these kids died. Right. It's good publicity. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. Now, I, I would imagine that maybe one or two people gave money out of the goodness of their heart, okay? But for the most part, it's all publicity. Mm-hmm. You know, look how great, look at the great things we're doing. Nobody gave a fuck about those kids. Because why? Because they're little black kids. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and that's why this case has had so much controversy. So much controversy. 
Now, in 1981, President Reagan issued more than $2 million to the city of Atlanta and the task force to use towards the investigation and for citizens who needed help in dealing with the stress of the murders. Other monies that were donated and raised were mostly used to help in the investigation as well as to help the families of the list victims. Unfortunately, only a few of the victims' families ever received the money that was raised or donated. The city and nonprofit organizations poorly controlled the money. Much of the money fell through the cracks of the system, misplaced or lost altogether. However, despite the massive flow of money into the city to help put an end to the murders, they continued. The second adult to make the infamous list was 20-year-old Larry Rogers. No relation to Patrick. Pat, Patman. Mm-hmm. Patman. <laughs> Get the name <laughs> right, white girl. It's Patman. <laughs> he turned up dead after missing. Damn, white motherfuckers. Being after being missing for shit. <laughs> more than two weeks in April of 1981. He was not found in a river like the three victims before him, but in an abandoned apartment. His cause of death was documented as probable asphyxia by strangulation. And Rogers was classified as mentally retarded. So hold on. Now, this other killer, we're, this isn't Wayne Ro- Wayne that we're talking about, right? Uh, Wayne or is it? Yes. I'm My next paragraph. Oh. Rogers was one of the few victims to be connected to Wayne Williams. Supposedly, Williams had hidden the younger brother of Larry Rogers from police. The younger Rogers had been involved in a violent fight in which he suffered a head injury. It was Wayne Williams, in fact, that had taken him to the hospital. Williams overheard on his police scanner news of the fight and had beaten the police to the scene. Williams had picked up the mother of the boys and took her to his apartment where young Rogers was. Mrs. Rogers would later testify against Williams at his trial. The apartment that Williams had taken her to was close by to the place where her older son was later found dead. So, now we have a connection to Wayne Williams. The only connection, though. So far. And I, I think that, honestly, that you're on to something. Because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take back what I said. This has to be more than one person. Has to be. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to recant what I said. I think this has to... This is, and it's, it's not unusual, either. Because we, we saw this, we brought this up before. The, the freeway killers, which would be, uh, you know, Bolin... Kearney, yeah, Craft, yeah, Bonin, Bonin, Kearney, and Craft, yeah, yeah, um, you know where they thought it was just one serial killer, but it's three that don't even know each other, but with the same modus operandi and the same disposal methods, right? So it's it's not unheard of, right? I'm just saying. I know it's not. I mean, and I mean for because some of the victims were stabbed, some were beaten to death, some were death by asphyxiation. Um, <laughs> then you have the age range from seven to you know, early 20s, it's, it just doesn't make sense that it's the same person. Five. Four. Yep. Four people? No. Four more minutes. Oh, no. I'm, 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 I was going to end there anyways. Oh, that works. Okay. Yeah. All right, boys and girls. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join the citizens of Brutal Nation and interact with us. Damn it. Check out our Printify. It's Printify, isn't it? Yes, you got it right oh, for a Jesus. Uh, shop. We got all kinds of swag in there, stuff for Sasquatches, everything you can imagine. Uh, this show's copyright 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying. Thieving bastards. bastards. And we will talk to you guys later on. Bye-bye. Bye.